1: Hello and welcome to the European Studies channel of the New Books Network. Today on the show, we have Kostas Lapavistas to talk about his book, The Left's Case Against the EU, published by Polity Press in 2019. The book challenges the traditional left-wing view that the EU is a fundamentally benign project and that if the union shifts rightward, then the answer will be to reform it from within. Instead, Kostas argues that the response to the Eurozone crisis represents the ultimate transformation of the Union into a neoliberal institution that has austerity, privatisation and wage cuts embedded into its core. At the same time, the rise of German hegemony has divided and destabilised the Union. These developments in the EU make it impervious to meaningful reform, thus the solution is a direct challenge to the EU – that stresses popular national sovereignty as free conditions for true internationalist socialism. Kostas Lapavitsas, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and I look forward to a discussion.
1: Great. Um, So maybe if we could start, could you give us a um, short description of who you are and what you do?
2: Um, I teach economics and political economy with particular specialization um, in the, um, the economy of Japan at the uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London. I've been, uh, I've been at SOAS for a long time. Um, and um, I've been uh, active in political economy of finance in terms of writing, academic and other writing for many, many years. Um, involved in various projects as well. Uh, other than that, in terms of uh, um, broader social and political activity, uh, I was involved in the um, uh, in the Greek uh, events of the previous decade, uh, and in 2015, I was uh, elected to the Greek Parliament uh, in the first wave of. Um, um, Syriza upsurge when he formed government. Uh, he was an MP collaborating with Syriza until they signed the um, uh, the third bailout uh, of Greece uh, with uh, its lenders, at which point I left Syriza, um, continued in politics for a bit, and then left Greek politics and returned to Britain. And that's about okay. it. Okay,
1: great. Be- um, yeah. And could you, um, and why did you decide to write this book?
2: There are two, two basic reasons why I decided to write the book. Um, the first has to do with the experience of Greece, which I've already mentioned. I was very heavily involved from, um, 2010 onwards, uh, when the Greek, um, uh, debt crisis broke out. Uh, I was very heavily involved from uh, from the beginning, not so much uh, in direct political terms, but uh, intellectually and in terms of uh, books and, and other outputs. Uh, my view at the time, argued um, openly, was that Greece uh, should have defaulted on its debt, um, an act of sovereign default, so it should have selected how to do it, and it should have um, stepped out of the euro. Um, I believe that uh, membership of the European Monetary Union was um, a tremendous mistake, a a destructive mistake, and uh, keeping the country within the Monetary Union was um, uh, a a guarantee of no solution, really, for its long-term development uh, and growth problems. I argued that openly. My name became associated with this position in Greece. That's the basis on which I was elected. I argued that very strongly within Syriza, um, but it was not a view that prevailed. So I thought that the experience of um, Syriza, which I lived through uh, and, and, and took part in and sort of I knew firsthand, um, should become more widely known. Um, I drew conclusions about the European Union. I thought they should become more widely known. Um, the second reason is, of course, uh, Brexit. I've lived in Britain for a very long time. i uh, been active in uh, British uh, social and political life. Uh, Brexit um, became um, major news and a major political and social event in this country and in Europe uh, soon after the Greek um, uh, events, and, and I became involved in, um, in in the discussion on Brexit, and I felt that uh, um, it was imperative to put across um, an alternative view of Europe um, from the view that was coming from the British left, from the Labour Party, uh, and others. And that was a good reason for writing the book. That's why Polity asked me to write the book, uh, and I obliged
1: Okay, great. Um, So in the book, you state that German hegemony in the EU is harmful to the Union and the European Monetary Union. Um, Could you explain how Germany got into a leading position in the EU and how it's been harmful to the Union as a whole?
2: I think, first of all, that we need to establish and accept that um, the Union itself... Certainly, the monetary union, but also the European Union more broadly, um, is not characterized by convergence and uh, um, and a sort of um, equality and um, equal partnership of its members. I think we need to start with that because that's a very strong ideological point um, which many, many people accept, especially those who want to defend the union. Um, And uh, my own position is that the union is characterized by divergence. It's characterized by uh, actually increasing divergence. Uh, And this divergence is marked by uh, the creation of a core and several peripheries, not just one periphery, several peripheries. The periphery that was most evident, say, in the Eurozone crisis was the southern periphery. Um, uh, Spain Portugal, Greece and possibly Italy but there are other peripheries as well in Central Europe um, in the Baltics and so on these are these are a characteristic creation of the trajectory of the European Union they're not accidental and they're not leftovers they are created by the Union now when you've got peripheries you've got a core as I've already mentioned and when you've got a core you've got people People, and countries that, that 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 lead the core, and that clearly is Germany. Um, the, the, the the hegemonic uh, country, the most powerful country in the European Union, is Germany. Um, and it is an interesting question and an interesting issue of how this um, hegemony has uh, e- emerged. But before I tell you my view, of this may I say one more point?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, um, go ahead.
2: May, many, 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 many people realize that uh, Germany has a hegemonic position in the Union, but in public discourse, in most countries of the Union that I'm aware of, this is not admitted openly. Um, the official position is uh, very different. It's what, it's what I originally opened up with that we're all converging, that we're all partners, except in Germany, um, the country in which you might find uh, open acknowledgement in public debate of the hegemonic position of Germany is Germany itself. Uh, And that is not surprising because it's characteristic of these phenomena in history that um, uh, debate is more open in the country that is hegemonic in the other countries that are not uh, debate is usually um, uh, masked and, and uh, and people pretend that things are otherwise. Um, So, for me, Germany has the has a hegemonic position. And the real question is, why? How has this happened? I want to make two points on that. The first is of crucial importance. Um, the, the, the hegemonic position of Germany has been reached through the European Union. Um, it's very, very important because... Um, to to say that, because people uh, often underestimate it. Uh, For example, you can think of um, the international system and the the world economy, and you can say that the United States still has a hegemonic hegemonic position. Um, As the the world um, hegemonic power, the United States has helped create a set of institutions Uh, which can be understood as institutions that support its its hegemonic position, uh, from the United Nations to the IMF, the World Bank, and so on. These were created in large part by uh, U.S. forces and U.S. intervention. That is not the case in the European Union. The European Union was created first, and German hegemony has emerged through careful management and manipulation of the mechanisms of the Union by... Um, by uh, the German state, by German power. So that's a key point about the nature of (laughs) hegemony. Germany is not strong enough by itself to be hegemonic in Europe. It is hegemonic because of the European Union. Now, that's the first point. The second point on how it has emerged, this hegemonic position of Germany, is, of course, um, closely related to the monetary union. Um, The euro which was created more than 20 years ago now, was not originally um, a German idea. It was not proposed by Germany. It was more strongly proposed by France. Um, It was understood as a response to German unification and all the various economic problems that had preceded um, that period uh, in terms of the balance of payments and, 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 and flows of funds across Europe. Uh, it was a French initiative and the, 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 the aim was fairly transparent and, uh, and, and admitted at the time, which was basically to tie in a uh, newly united Germany into this um, system and make sure that it played by the rules as they were understood by um, the French establishment at the time. Um, unfortunately, th- things have not worked out that way because the euro is... a um, was 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 designed as a pretty rigid mechanism, um, which helped German uh, industry um, establish its preeminence in Europe in an unprecedented way uh, by removing the option of uh, uh, exchange rate changes for other countries in Europe. It basically undermined their competitiveness, and given the sustained Um, wage repression in Germany for a very long time from the middle of the 1990s, it gave Germany a tremendous competitive advantage. Um, That competitive advantage emerged uh, in the European markets, first of all, which soon became domestic markets for German big business. And then on this basis, allowed German exporting businesses to compete globally and to acquire a global position. And so What we've seen since the establishment of the euro, there's no doubt at all about it, is the emergence of an incredible surplus on current account for Germany. It's an astonishing surplus, which continues to be uh, very, very large, based on this monetary mechanism and monetary system, which is, of course, the foundation of uh, German economic and then political preeminence in Europe. This is where German... uh, Uh, hegemony is rooted in Europe. And um, in my judgment, that will remain the case for some time. It will be defended very strongly by um, German interests, political and economic, in the years to come.
1: So do you think that there's any way that this could be, the hegemonic position of Germany could be shifted so that the EU becomes less dominated by Germany.
2: Um, as, as I mentioned, as I mentioned already, um, the hegemonic position of Germany is very tightly um, connected and linked to the mechanisms of the EU. It derives, in good measure, from the existence of the EU. So. Whatever happens to the EU, whichever way the institutions develop now in the years ahead, there will always be, and mostly unspoken, sometimes openly admitted, um, attempt to maintain power relations and hierarchy. Uh, I don't think that this will will happen from within because the mechanisms, in a sense, are dominated uh, already by these interests um, From within. That doesn't mean that the EU does not change. That doesn't mean that it does not change. Of course, it does change. And I think we're going through a significant period of change uh, right now, or signaled in um, a variety uh, of ways. Um, uh, However, this uh, this, this change is not in the direction in which many people, um, uh, on the left in particular, uh, imagine that we're moving towards uh, some kind of uh, federal uh, union, uh, superstate uh, that will be um, uh, that will be characterized by uh, uh, an attempt to control markets and to to support working people and to take uh, um, largely Keynesian uh, uh, measures and policies and to support incomes and employment and so on uh, and control big business. That is not what's happening. Uh, the change that we're observing is not of that type, uh, and it, it is actually quite strongly neoliberal still. And the bottom line is that uh, whatever form it takes, um, German fundamental interests will be uh, and are defended. Um, there's another way of putting it, and, and, and perhaps that will help make the case clear. Um, uh, again, as I've already mentioned, you can see the EU as a, a partnership, uh, in which various nation states uh, of, of, of Europe have, 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 have willingly take taken part and, um, uh, uh, and and given up some of their sovereignty um, to create a transnational uh, entity that goes beyond the nation state and that is um, that is good because this transnational entity will overcome the um, um, the, 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 the problems and the disasters that nation states have created in Europe, it will it will go beyond nationalism, and um, and therefore it will create a uh, more progressive and and and, and uh, uh, forward-looking uh, reality in Europe based on um, soft power and so on. That's 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 basically a, an argument that you you hear a lot about, and you used to hear it far more than than now, but nonetheless it still is. Um, common, um, I think that that is very misleading uh, altogether. That's not what we see. The European Union is a creation of nation states. Nation states have not gone away. They have not surrendered their sovereignty. Um, they've created the European Union as an alliance. Uh, there is a constant um, uh, uh, arrangement of uh, different powers within the um, uh, European Union to defend their own national interests as they uh, understand them, these interests, Um, and the shifting network of alliances. And obviously core countries um, play the dominant uh, dominant role in this. The nation state is there. It's doing very well and it is very powerful um, in the European Union. And the most, Dominant position of these nation states is, of course, that of the German state, which, because of its history in the 20th century, because of the wars, because of everything that we know in Europe, has had to defend its own national interests in ways that were not really um, um, open, as open and as as clear as they would have been for other nation states. Uh, And that continues. That hasn't gone away. That is basically how the European Union works even if it changes um, and it is changing at the moment uh, the bottom line is still that um, um, hierarchy is maintained in German hegemonic power um, in a constant tussle with French power uh, is present in the mon- in the European Union and so it will be.
1: Okay, so I think we should move on from this topic I may, and my next question is um, how, how do you think that the Eurozone crisis of 2010 and the financial crisis in 2007 uh, to nine have affected the EU and the European Monetary Union?
2: I think that's a, that's a crucial question. I think that's a crucial question. And I think we're living, we're living through the impact uh, of those events uh, right now. Uh, and we, we can see them very clearly in the coronavirus crisis that came 10 years later. Um, but if we look at the, the global crisis of 2007-2009 and then the Eurozone crisis that followed it, um, a number of things became very clear. Um, first of all, that um, whatever else happened, um, the interests of... Um, lender countries and the, the big institutions of the union that had uh, um, basically uh, cooperated with lender countries uh, should be defended. For me, the Greek events, uh, but also the experience of Portugal, the experience of um, um, Spain and uh, other countries at the time were of decisive importance. It became very clear that the European Union um, was structured and managed by uh, institutions and and an approach that was um, thoroughly well sort of hardened in in the interest of lenders, in the interest of big business. Um, The deal that was imposed on Greece, for instance, the way that the citizen government was, uh, was confronted by uh, the mass ranks of uh, European institutions um, was absolutely revealing. Um, no concessions were made. Um, any alternative view was opposed and destroyed. And uh, it became very clear that at the core of it, the European Union had the neoliberal practices. He uh, um, believed in austerity. And he was out, first and foremost, to defend the interests of big business rather than poorer countries and uh, working people. That, to me, uh, was clear. At the same time, however, um, there was no denying that uh, the rigidity of the monetary union, the um, inability of the euro to um, serve the interests even of big business of other countries. It served the interests of German big business very well, but less well the interests of French big business or Italian big business or the Italian economy, the Spanish economy as a whole, It served them far less well. The inability of the euro to, to adjust and to, um, to, to, to confront its own weaknesses and to transform itself structurally was also very revealing. Uh, because it was causing, um, it was it was raising the prospect of collapse, um, and I was quite astonished to observe that um, the European Union was not capable of of formally changing those structures during that time. What it was not formally capable of doing, however, it began doing informally, and that's what's important. The European Union has transformed itself informally, and especially the monetary union. Um, in a very sustained way during the last uh, 10 years. The first and most important change has to do with the European Central Bank. The attitude of the European Central Bank back in 2010 and 2011 uh, was very hard and inadequate for Uh, the crisis that Europe was facing at the time. It it did not act as a central bank um, uh, of its time. It did not act in the way in which the Federal Reserve System um, did in the United States. It it was not capable of dealing with the crisis. It was actually making it worse, Um, particularly because uh, it could not create liquidity freely and easily to assuage the the pressures in in the financial markets. Part of this was connected to the no bailout rule um, under which the union operated, um, which acted as a as a break on the European Central Bank. Well, the eurozone crisis began a process whereby the no bailout rule was suspended, or if made made uh, without content, and the European Central Bank was transformed. once Mario Draghi um, took over, uh, the change became far more uh, established and it became very clear that the European Central Bank began to operate differently and he began to provide liquidity uh, far more freely through the acquisition of uh, uh, government paper, even in the secondary markets, but in huge amounts. Um, the provision of liquidity then be- began to resemble that of other central banks. The European Central Bank changed and we saw that transformation in the coronavirus crisis. The ability of the ECB to respond um, and respond massively through the, its pandemic program uh, has its roots in the change that began in the Eurozone crisis. So that's the first change, which is of paramount importance. But then as that became bigger and bigger uh, and it became clear that the Eurozone um it was not functioning like before. It was acquiring elements of discretion. Other things began to emerge uh, slowly, which then became became evident when coronavirus struck. So what we saw was um, the suspension of the Stability and Growth Pact. Now, the Stability and Growth Pact was the, um, the cornerstone of the monetary union. The, it provided fiscal discipline, and it was almost uh, a law in, uh, in in ideological terms in in the uh, monetary union. Well, that's been suspended in one go. Um, on at the, same, at the same time as that was suspended, what we also saw was the suspension of um, regulations on state uh, aid, the provision of state aid, and the Uh, management of competition Um, until very recently until March this year essentially um, state aid rules in the European Union were rigid hard, harder than um, world trade rules Um, and uh, basically um, the aim was to allow for a level playing field presumably but in effect uh, acted as uh, mechanisms to prevent state intervention uh, in the economy. Well, that's been lifted. It's been lifted. and state aid the last few months has been enormous, particularly uh, in Germany. Uh, and finally, what we've seen the last uh, few weeks, with um, the adoption of the uh, of the new generation EU new generation plan of the Commission, uh, where we see um, substantial fiscal transfers. They're not as big as people make out, but they're substantial, based on um, borrowing undertaken by the Commission. In other words, some kind of joint borrowing, not quite Eurobonds, but some kind of joint borrowing. Now, that again is a tremendous change. If you put all these changes together, you will now see that the European Union has become. <clears throat> even more openly, an alliance of states operating on the basis of discretion, not rules, uh, in which shifting alliances of states with the hegemonic states in the center dictate the pattern of events and the behavior of the, um, of the union as a whole. That's what's happening uh, in my judgment, and that is the outcome of, in the longer term of the crisis of the Eurozone Um, in the the 10 years that followed in the ways that I've summed up for you.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today, that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
1: Okay, so um, maybe uh, how do you think they could have responded to both the eurozone crisis and the financial crisis? Like, what would your be your? How would you respond to them?
2: Um. When the crisis broke out in Europe, right? When the 2010 crisis broke out in Europe, and that was basically um, a continuation of the global crisis, 2007, 2009. When when that crisis broke out, the Eurozone crisis, my own personal expectation was, surely the decision-making powers of the union will realize that ultimately the problem has to do with the euro. It has to do with the monetary mechanism, which is uh, clearly dysfunctional, which does not allow for um, an adjustment of um, competitive power uh, and uh, favours German competitiveness because Germany has followed the policy of wage rigidity and keeping its inflation low. Uh, I thought surely they would see that and surely there would be uh, some kind of policy whereby the adjustment would be, in a sense, equitably shared between the member states. In other words, Germany would be asked to make some uh, concessions itself, uh, not just the the southern states in terms of adjusting to competi- its own competitiveness. So I thought that Germany would be asked to make some concessions there. And then I also thought that perhaps we will see some kind of structural change of the way uh, the monetary union worked allowing for greater flexibility. Nothing happened of that nature. Nothing. Um, the burden was shifted onto the southern periphery Um No change was imposed, uh, uh, no no demands for change were imposed on the countries of the core. Um, The pain was shifted entirely onto the periphery and and the situation became even more untenable than than before. It became very clear that this was stabilization without the prospect of growth. Um, The European Union stabilized the South through poverty and through... uh, um, social suffering basically, without giving it the prospect of uh, of growth because of course the monetary union had not changed um, did not change structurally um so that 's what I expected, and that 's what should have happened in a way uh if if this was a genuine partnership uh, of countries there's no doubt that Greece had mishandled its uh, finances and its um uh, uh, and its um, uh, trade uh, uh, arrangements, there is no doubt that Spain and, 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 and Italy and sorry in Ireland had uh, gone through enormous credit bubbles pivoting on uh, uh, on, on real estates and therefore they had to take uh, some action to correct that and some pain as a result of that. But by God, they were not the only countries that had actually mishandled their economy. The German uh, economy was itself very badly warped, um, having gone through tremendous austerity domestically, um, a tremendous loss of income for working people in Germany, um, a a worsening of infrastructure, lack of investment, uh, and that counterbalanced by tremendous exports. So I thought, yeah, surely Germany would also have to rebalance. Well, it didn't. It should have done, but it didn't. Um, That to me was a lesson. It was a lesson, uh, and it made me look at the European Union in a very different way, and that's why I wrote my book. Um, And I think that this gives you also insight into what's happening now. The Union is changing, but it's not changing by restructuring itself in the way that people imagine. It is changing um, in this this sort of gradual, cumulative, unplanned way, and the end result will be more competition among nations and more competition among states, in which hegemonic nations will win in the end, as always.
1: Okay, so I think I would like to go to a sort of different topic now, which is to touch on democracy in the EU. I think it is in chapter six you talk about this of your book. So in general, could you go into what your view is on the EU being a democratic organization and maybe how the Eurozone crisis may have affected um, EU democracy?
2: The EU makes a lot of... um a lot of uh, um, noise and um, projects itself uh, ideologically as a very democratic um, um, institution that um, relies on soft power. Um, A minute's consideration, particularly if you look at the EU from the outside, is enough to show you that that's not the case. Um, Actually, the... The system itself is um, very strongly um, undemocratic and anti democratic uh, in, 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 in many ways. Um, it seems to me that democracy is of crucial importance um, for a variety of reasons, also for economic performance. Uh, democracy is, of, is fundamental the question is what do we understand by democracy and how we approach it now even in electoral terms i don't think there's any doubt that the eu is not um, sufficiently democratic all you've got to do is, is 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 go over the mechanisms of european elections and see how the um, the uh, european commission appoints its um, chairperson. Um, this mechanism was established in this particular case, the Spitzenkandidaten mechanism, um, trying to instill a, a modicum of democracy in it. Um, countries went through this uh, complicated rigmarole. And when in the end, um, they. Representatives of powerful nations could not agree. They simply appointed the current incumbent um, bypassing their own system. So there is no democratic process at the level of the European Union that is comparable to national democratic processes. That cannot be repeated uh, enough. People get very confused. Because there are elections for the European Union, it is easy to imagine that somehow this entity out there is... Um, uh, is created through uh, democratic processes such as we have in most other countries in Europe. It's not. That's not the case. Democracy, insofar as it exists in Europe, is always and invariably at the national level. And um, at the national level, it exists uh, in a, in a complex way, which involves elections, which involves ac- accountability and controls over the executive, executive power, and which, of course, involves uh, checks and balances on uh, the judiciary. These are the standard um, principles of, um, you know, uh, democracy as we've known it for uh, more than two centuries now. Well, they don't, they don't hold in, at the level of the European Union. They hold at the level of nation states, not at the level of the European Union. There, what you get is basically horse trading, appointment, and bypassing of accountability. You can see it at the level of the European Central Bank, for instance. You can see it um, at the level of um, several other institutions, including the Commission. But the most obvious instance of this bypassing of democracy is, of course, at the level of the European Court of Justice. Um, because the European Court of Justice is... this historically incredibly strange institution created by nation-states, but apparently detached from nation-states. Um, an institution that exists um, uh, somewhere in, in a sort of uh, um, hanging in the spaces between nations and states, not obviously subject to any kind of accountability processes, drawing on and creating European law which is supposed to be superior to um, national law uh, and over which there are no popular controls. Only Europe could create that. It's a Frankenstein. It's a complete Frankenstein that denies the basic principle of democracy, which is that laws must be made through a process that is accountable to the people, through a process that expresses popular sovereignty. Well, the European Court of Justice is not based on popular sovereignty in any sense. Um, And to me, this is evidence of powers in Europe that basically bypass democratic processes, bypass um, sovereign rights, and serve other interests, and in this case uh, big business interests, because the European Court of Justice, in the end of the day, Acts as defender of neoliberal uh, policies and as defender of neoliberal um, practices. So democracy is crucial. And uh, the critique of the European Union and the opposition to the European Union uh, is a matter of democracy as well as um, a matter of organizing the economic and social affairs of Europe differently. Um, Now, I understand that um, there's a big debate about sovereignty, what it means, and is the nation-state the best um, defender of democratic rights and of uh, sovereignty and so on. I am not a defender of the nation-state per se. Uh, I understand that this history in Europe has been very mixed and uh, uh, terrible at times. Um, but I, I would like to look at reality and I would like to use historical experience uh, as my guide, um, to go back to the to the Greek events that I mentioned to you before, the series of events that I mentioned to you before, um, we had a government that was elected, popularly elected, and expressed the democratic wish of the Greek people for certain actions. Um, and um, it was thwarted. It was not able to to do anything, any of the things that the Greek people um, voted for, uh, because it was opposed by uh, the mechanisms of the European Union, and ultimately behind those lay the European Central Bank and, of course, the European Court of Justice uh, in in the last instance. Um, There was no element of popular sovereignty that I could see, and in my judgement that is what is needed in europe uh, a reassertion of popular sovereignty uh, a sense of belonging and a sense of um of, of being able to control political and other institutions in the way in which the people want at the moment there is none of that in europe none of that and that is uh, the root of political malaise in europe if you ask me
1: so if i understand you correctly you are generally um you're supporting a shift towards a less integrated union um where uh, they still trade with each other but they um generally the union is not um well well it's not as integrated and that would be the way to solve this problem of the union not being democratic is that do I understand you correctly
2: um you definitely, you definitely putting your finger on important issues uh, here, and you give me an opportunity to say a few more things about it in terms of what needs doing for democracy and transformation of, of the union. Um, of paramount importance is uh, the sidelining the abolition and sidelining of the monetary union in the first place. Europe does not need a common currency and it does not need a central bank that is accountable to no one. Uh, Europe doesn't need that. Um, th- and it doesn't need it not only uh, economically, but also in democratic terms. Uh, people, people typically do not appreciate the power of money uh, not just in economic terms, but also in social and political t- terms, the emergence of the common currency in Europe has accelerated enormously the move of Europe away from democracy. It made accountability um, much less prominent in Europe by creating all these institutions that are concerned with defending the monetary union in the first, uh, f- first and foremost. So Europe does not need all that. Uh, if it wishes to have democracy, it should move away from these very powerful transnational institutions um, to do with, moneta- with money and re-established monetary sovereignty. Uh, obviously, I'm not advocating um, competitive uh, alignment of exchange rates and, uh, and free market determination of exchange rates in Europe, but there are many other ways in which uh, international transactions among European nations, um, commodity transactions... And capital flows can be managed uh, in an equitable way uh, in the absence of a common currency. You don't need a common currency for that. So uh, I would argue that that's a key uh, transformation that Europe needs that will improve democracy as well. Now, more broadly, uh, Europe needs to confront head-on the relationship between uh, European law and national law. The idea that European law uh, predominates and other things equal countries should uh, make their own national law uh, consistent and coherent with uh, European law is deeply problematic to me, deeply problematic. I understand how national law is determined. I was a member of parliament. I saw the the, the lawmaking process at first hand. It's not ideal, far from it. Uh, it has many, many problems, uh, to be sure. Uh, parliaments do. Uh, but at least there's a process of electing people, uh, controlling what happens, accountability and so on. There is no such process in Europe. No such process at all. Um, and uh, until and unless the relationship between European law and national law is put on a better foundation, uh, democracy will suffer uh, in Europe for sure. Uh, so that is also what needs uh, looking into um, strongly. The third thing that I would point out is, of course, all those mechanisms in Brussels, including the European Parliament, the Commission, uh, that huge array of bureaucrats uh, and others, possibly 50,000 people, something like that, between 30 and 50,000 people in Brussels who... Um, usually well-paid and uh, have uh, all kinds of privileges in, 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 in Brussels. Um, their, their role in, in, in any kind of democratic process in Europe is not obvious to me. Um, not obvious at all. And there, that also has to be straightened out. And that also has to be um, managed. And uh, uh, and, and reconsidered. In other words, what I'm saying is the nation states which are present and they haven't gone away, they're the dominant players in Europe should admit that they, are, that they are the dominant players. Better structures of sovereign control should be established, popular sovereign control should be established within nation states and better relations should emerge among nation states, independent of the current uh, arrangement's Separate mechanical kind of arrangements of the European Union. It's a big and long task, I know. Uh, but then Europe is a continent, a very well-off continent with millions of people. So it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a simple solution, no matter what.
1: Okay, so um, I would like to shift now to the topic of Brexit and get what get your opinion on how you think that Britain leaving the European Union will affect the uh, Union long term and if you think there may be an opportunity in this for the EU to start reforming?
2: Um, well, Brexit is important for the trajectory of the Union, undoubtedly. And um, its impact on the Union um, will become clearer only in the longer term. Many of the changes that I already mentioned to you that are taking place in the union, the lifting of um, the suspension of the Stability and Growth Pact, uh, the suspension of um, state aid regulations, um, the adoption of uh, some kind of uh, fiscal transfer mechanisms, uh, modest as they are, but nonetheless, there are all these things that have taken place the last little while indicating the um, transformation of the Union, the preceding transformation of the Union, are also connected to Brexit. Brexit uh, was uh, um, a major shock uh, for the Union because uh, Britain is, of course, a very powerful European country. It was not a founding member of the European Union, but nonetheless played a crucial role. And its exit... Um, it's historically very important for a number of reasons. Um, coronavirus has, um, has has muddied the water a bit um, and made made us forget Brexit for a bit, but its importance uh, is there and it will become clearer again in the near future. Now, why did Britain exit? What is it that led to 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 to, to, to Brexit? Now. Uh, we can we can uh, we can cut to the main um, point quickly and say that um, the policy that the British state had historically adopted towards the European Union um, since its uh, entry, a policy that we could deta- we could describe as semi-detachment, <clears throat> in other words. We participate, we are a net contributor to the budget, Uh, but at the same time, we um, maintain our right to ask for exemptions, not to comply with um, certain regulations and rules that we think do not um, fit and match our national interest. Um, That policy came to an end uh, around about 2016 with David Cameron as the Prime Minister. And it came to an end um, in the context of the Eurozone crisis as the European Union was itself transforming um, the way it acted, but mostly because um, Britain realized that in that um, in that context of the changing European Union, it could not defend its... Um, it's national interest in the same way. The, the, the ability to say that uh, uh, we want exemptions uh, and we will get them uh, had basically, uh, it basically evaporated. Um, David Cameron asked for exemptions regarding uh, uh, the free movement of labor, um, didn't get them, and it became clear that... Um, the strategy of Britain uh, for many decades, with regard to the European Union, had come to an end. Um, so, Britain had to uh, to devise a different strategy for itself. It wasn't clear what was that going to be. Uh, that was going to be. Uh, there was a big debate within the British uh, ruling elite on how to structure that um, new position towards the European Union, and in that context. David Cameron made a mistake, made a political mistake and called for a referendum, allowed the referendum to proceed. Now, the referendum uh, that uh, decided in favor of uh, of exit um, was not directly on the European Union itself. A lot of people in Britain simply did not understand what the European Union is or does. And that is not just Britain, incidentally. Many people in Europe don't understand it. Um, they voted, though, for exit because, uh, of, um, because they wanted to protest. Because they wanted to protest against everything that had happened the last several years, the inequality, um, the lack of direction, the evident problems that society and economy faced in Britain. Um, for many, many years, and they wanted to protest against those. And the people they associated with these policies were people who were advocating membership, strong membership. Uh, So if you wanted to protest against these policies, you you voted against the European Union, because um, those people you associated with those policies uh, supported the European Union. So British people voted no. After that, it became a matter of democracy. Um, and there we saw again the democratic deficit of the European Union, um, and those who support the European Union. Because what took place after that referendum was a sustained effort on the part of um, um, of the pro EU forces in Britain, but also the EU bureaucracy to overturn the British referendum. Um, extraordinary things took place, which I witnessed firsthand. And that's why I also wrote my book. Extraordinary things. I mean, unbelievable things took place, um, attempting to overturn the clearly expressed um, desire, democratic will of the British people. And, um, um, And in other countries, this might have worked. In Britain, it wouldn't. And it was obvious to me that it wouldn't if you know the history of Britain, then you should have realized that was the wrong thing to do. Um, it was the wrong thing to do because British working people and others um, might have a thousand weaknesses in terms of their own understanding of history, culture, and so on. But democracy, they take seriously. Uh, and their vote, they take very seriously. And all efforts to undermine their vote was, were obvious to them, and they, it made them ever more determined um, to continue saying no. That was, of course, mixed and uh, uh, muddied with outright racism, it has to be said. Uh, anti-immigrant feeling, racism and so on. Um, those who took advantage of it were, of course, forces of the extreme right in Britain um, that... Um, associated the European Union with immigration uh, and uh, wanted to exit on the basis of uh, essentially anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-immigrant prejudice. Uh, This was very, very unfortunate. History moves in these unfortunate ways. And it was also largely because uh, the British left, uh, much like the rest of the European left, instead of taking a constructively critical view of the European Union and a constructively positive view of the referendum, effectively, and the referendum result for exit, effectively tried itself to undermine it. Uh, and it did not put arguments across that could have allowed the British people to see that actually immigrants are not the problem. Uh, and racism is not the solution for anything. Um, but then such is life and so so do um, politics move. Uh, uh, the bottom line is that uh, the attempt to to undermine the referendum could never have worked in this country. It didn't. Uh, to us who live here and who experience um, um, the the attitude of working class and other voters on these issues, it was perfectly obvious that um, uh, that, the, that even if there was a second referendum, uh, the vote would again have been no. It might even have been stronger. The the, the vote, the, the the no vote, might even be. Even if been stronger. So Brexit um, made all these things very clear. And in the domestic context, finally, in Britain, Brexit was the reason why uh, we have the conservative government that we have. Um, the, the section of the, of the Conservative Party that understood this and understood the need to position Britain differently in the EU. Uh, and understood the need to placate working people in Britain, one, uh, they came out with a message of, um, different policies, policies pivoting on, um, on, uh, the nation state policies, pivoting on expenditure policies, pivoting on intervention, um, and policies that would be directly open to the, the democratic will of the British people. And, um, guess what, they won. Uh, now, I don't trust them and I don't, I don't support them, but I recognize what they did. Whereas uh, much of the left in Britain was confused, did not put across clear arguments, and it got destroyed effectively. Um, and that's where we are.
1: Okay, so I would like to finish up with just asking... Um, where do you see the future of the European Union and do you think that this will be a positive one or a negative one in light of the pandemic and Brexit and all these transformative events that are happening at the moment?
2: The European Union and especially the Monetary Union has shown its ability to survive. That has to be factored in. Um the ability of the euro to survive the crisis of the previous decade is astonishing and um, indicates that major forces will move behind it to, to prevent its collapse, uh, no matter what. As they have done in the course of the coronavirus crisis, because you see, when coronavirus hit, um, it was immediately a threat for the euro and acknowledged as such. It was immediately a threat for the euro because um, the regulations of the monetary union were preventing the southern periphery from uh, taking key steps to uh, protect uh, their economies. Um, Tensions quickly emerged and it became clear that politically the, the, the monetary union was becoming untenable. So the reaction by uh, the Commission and other forces within the European Union was actually a reaction to um, the threat to the euro. I have to say, it is in, in historical terms, it is actually uh, quite strange and funny in a way. The euro was created as a currency and a set of institutions that would presumably make Europe stronger, that it would take it forward, that it would actually make it uh, Better founded in practice, as we've seen, it is the, the it is the the first point of weakness. And uh, far from the euro actually helping Europe confront shocks, the rest of Europe has to uh, to mobilize to defend the euro whenever a shock emerges. It's like it, it is the horse being uh, the cart being placed before the horse uh, here. But anyway. Um, Uh, To go back to what I was saying, there is no doubt that uh, the Euro will be protected um, and it will be protected um, by uh, the powers that be because, of course, it serves key interests and the fundamental interests it serves are those of uh, German industry, German big business that um, is very worried about what might happen if the Euro collapses. So, uh, I don't expect the euro to disappear soon, um, but I do expect the monetary union to behave differently to before. I've already outlined how that is. From a state of, um, um, uh, of rules, from being a, 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 a monetary union operating on the basis of pretty rigid rules, gradually it has become a monetary union that operates on the basis of discretion, uh, or good good proportion, good good dose of discretion, uh, serving, of course, still the interests of uh, hegemonic powers. That, that is an important transformation uh, of the monetary union. Uh, and that, I think, points to what might happen to the European Union um, as a whole, far from it becoming um, a super-state or a federal union or the other fantasies that, uh, that people uh, often have, uh, which are pure fantasies because... There cannot be such a state in Europe um, and there should not be such a state in Europe if one values democracy. Um, far from that, the European Union is moving towards um, a set of becoming a set of institutions within which nation states compete more openly and ally themselves uh, against each other um, more openly. Um, I expect it to continue that way. Um, I expect it to keep moving that way. I don't think it will go um, out of existence. Too many interests are tied up, even with the European Union itself. Um, it will be a framework within which uh, economic and political life will take place in Europe, and I expect it to change pragmatically and um, sort of functionally uh, as things move along. Uh, um, it, it, within that I think that the role of the nation-state will become more and more powerful. Um, The nation-state has demonstrated its enormous power uh, in the context of the coronavirus crisis. It it has been the main lever of intervention. Um, um, It controlled markets. It uh, provided liquidity. It stopped social life by imposing lockdowns. Um, it, it it has shown that um, economic and social life moves around it and that's how it's going to be in Europe and the European Union will adapt to it um, so the period of the grand words and the big ideological promises of a transnational uh, entity that will move towards a federal uh, um, existence and uh, it will transcend the nation state that's coming to an end that that's finished practically Um, that's how I see the European Union moving Um, that's what I think it will be Uh, and in that way it can maintain itself for quite some time institutions in history don't often cease to exist they become something else Um, they lose their content, it becomes something else Um, a name is maintained but the function is quite different and I think that's what's going to happen to the European Union uh, in the years ahead
1: Okay, well, unfortunately, uh, the time is up. We have to bring the podcast to a close. Um, I'd like to thank you for the fascinating read and the fascinating conversation. Um, And thank you for appearing on the European Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you, and um, I hope it's useful to you.
1: Okay, and lastly, thank you to the listener for listening.